Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will touch on the market implications of a potential infrastructure agreement, along with a look at the case for value over growth equities and other allocation ideas to consider for your portfolio. So joining me on the line for the conversation today, very fortunate to have with us both Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas, as well as David Lefkowitz, Head of Equities for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Jason, David, welcome back to Top of the Morning. Hope you're staying cool wherever you are and looking forward to diving into our conversation today. Hey, good morning, Dan. It's good to be here. Absolutely. So perhaps we could begin with some macro commentary. I know late last week this was highly anticipated, though we did receive some positive bipartisan developments on a potential infrastructure framework. It's important to emphasize that a lot still needs to be ironed out here, but it was good news to hear about this development late last week. So I'm curious, Jason, to hear your takeaways from what we know as of today, maybe some thoughts on the market implications of the framework as we know it. And how this proposal might progress from here? Well, there's a few things we can start with just to set the context. Uh, these are negotiations that have been taking place in the Senate, a group of 10 senators, five Republicans, five Democrats, uh, for now probably a couple of months. Um, and they've uh, also been looping in key parts of the administration, the Biden administration, to make sure they're in the loop. And everyone is hopefully on the same page to uh, reach some sort of compromise deal, which was kind of announced late last week on, on Thursday. Uh, the, the plan, as it's sort of being proposed, you know, the, the broad outline is about $970 billion in, in total spending on physical infrastructure, you know, emphasizing you know, surface transportation, bridges, roads, tunnels, clean water, and broadband communications. Uh, about $400 billion of this total is already money that's been appropriated for other uh, packages, such as the, the American Rescue Act that was passed in March, the $1.9 trillion package. There was money there that hasn't been spent. Some of this now could be re- in a position for this infrastructure package. So the total sort of new spending is in the range of around $570 billion. Uh, in terms of you know, pay-fors, uh, no new tax increases are being proposed for this. Uh, what's, what is being discussed is you know, some money allocated to the IRS for stricter enforcement to try and raise some money that way. But by and large, it looks like this would be primarily deficit finance spending uh, finance that way, uh, which, you know, that, that, you know, in terms of the economic impact, you know, incrementally more positive than if it was, you know, also financed by higher tax increases. So that was sort of the announcement that was made late last week uh, with President Biden supporting it. Uh, there's apparently 21 senators who've kind of signed off or publicly said they've signed off or supported these bipartisan negotiations, uh, which is critical because in order for this to actually pass, they need to get 60 votes in the Senate, which means assuming all the Democrats, all 50 support it, you still need to get at least 10 Republicans. There is a possibility some Democratic senators wouldn't support it, so maybe you need to even get a few more. Uh, and right now, there's been comments from some of the Republican members of this bipartisan group who said they do have the votes, but you know there hasn't been sort of a real formal counting yet to ensure that this could actually you know materialize. Uh, the other thing is that this could be part of the two-pronged strategy that the administration or the Democrats are looking to follow. Uh, when it comes to infrastructure spending, you know we thought there's you know a few different paths that could be materialized. One was to do everything through budget reconciliation, uh, so meaning that would be passed entirely through Democratic support through a budget reconciliation deal you know, later this year. There was this bipartisan you know, path that now there's, uh, there's some sort of you know, tentative proposal or things could collapse entirely. It looked like they were sort of independent, like it'd be one of those three. Now there's a decent chance we could actually get the first two. It's like a two-track two approach 
with this bipartisan deal and also other things done through budget reconciliation that would only get Democratic support and, and it would only be focused on areas that there is you know, unanimity among Democrats that he'd want to spend on it. Some of that might be in areas of you know, clean energy, uh, child care support, and also potentially include some tax increases. Uh, so that's sort of what's on the table. Uh, still a lot of uncertainty. You know, I think this time last week, we would have said it's more likely we'd get a budget reconciliation deal. Now it looks you know, reasonably likely they will for sure get a bipartisan deal, but the budget reconciliation is up in the air. And of course, these things can change you know, almost from day to day. So still a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, if we do get at least the you know, the current proposal, that's positive. But, you know, the, for the markets, it's still relatively minor event because this is money that's spent over multiple years. So in terms of really impacting GDP or corporate earnings, you know, anytime soon, it's, it's relatively modest. If there's a bigger deal later on, that could be incrementally more positive, you know, for the inflation trade. But again, because the money spent, you know, over such a long time period, finance with taxes, the actual economic impact um, on a yearly basis, it would still be relatively modest, certainly compared to the fiscal packages we've had thus far. Jason, thank you very much for that breakdown and that recap and providing some reflections. Very helpful. It's interesting to hear about what goes on behind the scenes in order for something like this to get over the finish line. And to your point, Jason, it does remain very fluid. So we'll see how this pans out over the next few weeks and even perhaps months. Now, in terms of getting into the markets a bit and thinking about perhaps beneficiaries of an infrastructure package, David, I know you recently reaffirmed your preference for value over growth, and you've been speaking about this for quite some time now, but you recently put out a blog, Value Down But Not Out, and within that blog, you talk about two key pillars behind your thesis. So can you take a moment, David, to walk us through your current thesis there? Yeah, thanks, Dan. And uh, yeah, I think it was a good segue from what Jason was talking about, because uh, to the extent we do get more fiscal support from uh, from Washington, as Jason was pointing out, you know, on the margin, it, it's 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 probably better than than not getting anything um, on on the margin, better for economic growth, uh, and that would tend to support value companies. But you know, really, the two key pillars of the call really come down to interest rates and earnings growth, and. Uh, interest rates, when interest rates are rising, that tends to and that tends to benefit value companies versus growth companies. And here I'm talking about long-term interest rates, not not the ones that the Fed or not the one that the Fed controls at the short, the very short-term one, uh, but it's it's the longer-term one, the you know the the ten-year Treasury yield. And when the ten-year Treasury yield rises. Uh, there's a couple of things that happen. You know, first, that tends to improve the profitability of financials and banks in particular. Um, they they earn a better spread on their their lending activities, and uh, so that that boosts profits for the banks, and they're the largest sector within within the value index. And then it also tends to send a signal about the the general strength of the economy. So higher interest rates tends to mean faster economic growth. So, uh, so I'll get to that in in a further in a second. And then the other the other way interest rates are play a role here is through valuations. And as interest rate if interest rates rise, then that will tend to be and this is what we've seen over the last couple of years that that tends to be a headwind for valuations for some of the more secular. Growth companies, the the, the companies that um, you know really really have a long tail of, of growth ahead of them. 
So, and just to be clear, I didn't mention this, but we do think within CIO, we do think that interest rates will rise. Our forecast on the 10-year is 2% at the end of the year. We're around one and a half now. So we do think that interest rates will rise a bit. So that should support value stocks over growth stocks. And then the other factor here is that value companies tend to be more cyclical, more tied to the overall economy. Uh, you know, if you think, I mentioned banks, other, other big components of value are industrials and energy companies. So these types of, of companies tend to just be uh, more correlated with the economy. And, you know, with, with the economy, in our view, looking to be obviously very strong this year, but we think that strength will continue next year at, at a more moderate pace, but still quite healthy. And that should benefit uh, value companies over growth companies with respect to, and, and that shows up in earnings growth. So we think there's some pretty clear support pillars for value. You, you're going to get value companies should benefit from the rise in interest rates. Uh, that could be a headwind that should be a headwind for growth companies. And then at the same time, value companies are really the ones that should reap uh, the a disproportionate reward from the faster sort of above trend economic growth that we're looking for over the at least the next year and a half or so. David, it was interesting as I was reading through the blog, I noticed it was highlighted that an argument is made that growth valuations are looking more reasonable. Having said that, I know as we're speaking, as we're recording this podcast on Monday, June 28th, uh, the NASDAQ is trading at an all-time high, yet you don't agree with that argument that was mentioned in the blog, David. What's your thinking there? Yeah, I, I mean, so uh, in terms of valuations, I mean, there are some growth companies that have gotten a bit cheaper. I mean, you can you can definitely find them. Um, you know, even within the Fang complex, there are some that have gotten cheaper, but there are others that have gotten more expensive, and that's also true within the Fang complex. Uh, but I think it's also important to look at the the uh, what's happened to value companies. Also, they've gotten cheaper as well. So when we look at the Russell 1000 growth versus the Russell 1000 value index, and those are the most common uh, and most popular growth and value indices, growth companies are trading at one of the highest premiums to value companies since the dot-com bubble. And they're, they're rivaling some of the, the, the valuation highs that we saw in the middle of last year, when uh, you know, when when the Fang stocks were 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 huge in favor during you know, during the early days of the pandemic, so you know, not not. I, I think it's important just to recognize that if we do get uh, macro variables moving as the way we think, interest rates rising, GDP growth coming in strong, which helps uh, earnings for value companies more than growth. You know, you just don't have a lot of cushion for for growth companies. In other words, you know, it looks like valuations for growth companies look a bit vulnerable relative to value companies, uh, given given the starting point where they are right now. Now, David, in terms of sector preferences, a few moments ago, you mentioned industrials, energy, financials as some of those key value components, so to speak. So sectors like that, David, are they most attractive to you at this time? And should we encounter any periods of turbulence in the markets or periods of volatility? How should investors consider responding there? Yeah, those sectors, uh, we we have a, a preference 
reference for. So financials, energy, industrials, all three of them. Uh, we also like consumer discretionary. Uh, it's just a, a play on the improving labor market. Mortgage rates remain very low. Housing activity very strong. Um, uh, so, you know, we think there's good support points for all of those. I, I would say it's also important to point out, Dan, that I think where to be underweight, I don't, where we think you want to be underweight from a sector perspective is definitely with the defensives. Um, so utilities and consumer staples. Uh, so, you know, those types of sectors tend to do best when you're late in the economic cycle. We're, we're, we're definitely not late in this economic cycle. So um, not only where we think there's opportunities, you know, would the ones we mentioned previously, financials, energy, industrials, and discretionary, I think almost just as important, make sure you're you're not overweight some of the more defensive areas, and, and we would recommend being underweight uh, utilities and staples. The other, yeah, I mean, look, we, we'd have to see then, you know, sort of what was causing a potential sell-off and, and where there might be some disconnects or, or value opportunities opening up um, because, of, because of that sell-off. But yeah, in general, I would say we're still early enough in this economic cycle that I would stay focused on those more cyclical areas uh, that are benefiting most from, from, you know, frankly, what is a booming economy right now. And, and we think that will continue for some time. David, thank you for the guidance there when it comes to allocation. Now, Jason, in terms of events that might occur, which could trigger any instances of market volatility, what might be some near-term risks to the market or the sustainability of the current market momentum that you're keeping an eye on, Jason? Well, tell me the answer is, uh, you know, to both is, is the same factors. It's just a question of how they materialize or even how the market sort of perceives them. So it's a little bit of whether it's kind of glass half full or glass half empty. If you think about sort of, you know, risks to the market, you know, there's a few obvious ones. Um, the assumption that inflation ultimately is transitory, that could be proved wrong. The numbers could continue to stay, you know, elevated and not be moderating, especially, you know, data points that would be indicative of not just sort of temporary pandemic-related distortions, but more underlying sort of cyclical pressures building up. For example, if wages, uh, if they continue to rise or show you know, strong strength, you know, that could be, uh, you know, a concern about inflation not moderating. Kind of related to that is, you know, the Fed's reaction function to this information. Uh, they came out with a hawker surprise in, in the June FOMC meeting. If we have commentary during the summer or other speeches to suggest they also continue to be surprising hawkishly to the upside, that's something the markets are not anticipating. That could certainly kind of you know, cause some challenges. Uh, also, just on the economic data front, we could be in a situation where, given the Fed is very data dependent right now to see how the data comes in, that really strong economic data, your strong job growth that we could get on Friday for June, uh, could actually then bring you know, future rate hikes forward because you know the fact that they we're meeting our both our inflation mandate and our jobs mandate or, or labor market mandate. So you know sometimes good data could be bad if it, for the markets if it means more aggressive you know Fed hiking, and then sort of all this kind of roll up together, you could say if you're a little bit more pessimistic, that economic growth has peaked, it's going to slow from here. Uh, inflation is still high. Consumer sentiment is high, but those things could kind of pull back. We will get tired of policy. This is all transitioning to sort of some sort of mid-cycle, and that could lead to some sort of market volatility, especially in the summer when volatility is light. Maybe positioning becomes stretched, and it doesn't take much to, to cause the market to pull back, you know, in the next couple of months or as we head into the fall. The flip side, though, is a lot of those things you could say, well, these are relatively modest risks. You know, the data should still be very good. Growth will still be very good. Inflation is declining. Uh, we can have a Fed that if it's just predictable in terms of what it's doing, along with fiscal policy progressing, as we discussed earlier, all that suggests not a positive environment for risk-taking with limited downside risks. 
So you have an environment where any sort of modest pullback is bought by investors, uh, so there's a buy the dip, because investors do have, still have a lot of cash that they're sitting on that they can deploy um, by various position metrics. We're not at, at extremes in terms of people over being overweight risk or being vulnerable to sort of any sort of pullback. So there's also, you know, a very plausible scenario where the market's just kind of keep growing higher throughout the summer, um, you know, as, you know, kind of conditions remain favorable. So it's sort of a bit of a toss-up, which is why I think there's also, you know, some uncertainty and volatility that we could experience just depending on how these things kind of play out over the next couple of months and then as we move into the fall. So, Jason, of course, we always need to be mindful of risk, though from the sounds of it, the current bull market seems to have room to run, coupled with the condition of the U.S. economy that David had shared with us a few moments ago. What might be some risks, Jason, of staying on the sidelines and then outside of U.S. equities, which which David covered for us a few moments ago. Are there any other allocation ideas, Jason, that you can share with us today? Well, the risk of staying on the sidelines is kind of the same risk that always is that markets keep going higher. You're waiting for a pullback to buy, uh, which doesn't materialize. So by the time you get in, the markets are higher, and there could be a pullback of 5 to 10%, but it still barely gets us to the levels of where we were before. Uh, and historically, you can sort of document that you know, you're know you almost always better off being invested as opposed to you're trying to buy those dip opportunities because it's just very difficult to, you know, to one, identify them, and two, when they occur, they're often at higher levels than when you were contemplating buying to begin with. Uh, so unless things are look really, you know, good, you know, there's like a real potential for a significant pullback, it's better to start to be allocated in the market. I think that's kind of the environment we're in right now. Aside from U.S. equities that David alluded to, I think equities globally look you know, relatively attractive. Um, you know, two areas that we like are you know, emerging markets and, you know, Japan equities. Um, these are two areas that, just in terms of the pandemic and vaccination, have been slower than the U.S. and now Europe has uh, kind of accelerated. So as vaccinations roll out in both those areas later this year, that should benefit from them. Uh, you know, generally EM, but also Japan, especially, tends to be tied to kind of global economic cycle and growth. So the global economy continues to accelerate as it opens up later this year or continues to open up. You know, those are two regions that should benefit uh, from that. Also, they've had strong kind of revisions in terms of the earnings outlook going forward, but the markets haven't kind of maybe priced that in as much as they have in, say, the U.S. or Japan or, or U.S. and Europe. So those are some areas within equity markets that we like. Uh, commodities are another kind of broad asset class that we think is attractive, especially oil uh, and some of industrial metals, again, tied more to the strong economic recovery and the reopening trade that we're going to see throughout the rest of this year. These are markets that tend to be sort of spot markets, meaning they have to clear right now as opposed to discounting future earnings like growth stocks. Uh, and if supplies are constrained while demand accelerates, that should put prices higher. Um, and commodities also have the benefit of being a bit of an inflation hedge if inflation does stay high. Uh, within fixed income, David mentioned that we expect rates to rise. So things that are longer duration look less attractive, like investment-grade corporate bonds, where spreads are very tight and, and you know, have long maturities, so very sensitive to higher rates. So something like senior loans, uh, are, are kind of attractive because they're floating rates, so rates-wise, they're not impacted by that. Uh, and they give you some sort of additional spread, certainly relative to, you know, kind of safe, you know, kind of government bonds, with relatively low risk at this time, given their fundamentals are very solid. So if you're looking for picking up a little bit of extra income, senior loans within the fixed income space is one of the areas that we still find quite attractive. Well, thank you, Jason, for walking us through those allocation ideas. And of course, we do encourage our clients listening in to have a follow-up conversation with their financial advisor if they would like to learn more and determine what might be a good fit given their particular circumstance. Though, Jason, David, very productive conversation this morning and very helpful to have this clarity in terms of how to think about positioning given where we are with respect to the U.S. economy and what the policy path 
forward might consist of. So more to follow up on. We'll look forward to some follow-up conversations with you both, though. Thank you again for your time and insights today. Appreciate it, as always. Welcome. Thanks, Dan. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas, as well as David Lefkowitz, Head of Equities Americas, both with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. And these resources can all be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including the recent blog blog authored by David Lefkowitz, Value Down But Not Out. So for clients of UBS, you can always contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more or receive a copy of any of the publications or blogs directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video. Series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.